There's something we haven't talked about enough on this podcast, something that's a huge part of many queer people's journeys, and that's religion. I grew up in the Church of Christ, and uh, my mother and father and sister all went to church as well. This is Krista Sapan, co-owner of Lipstick Lounge in Nashville, Tennessee. She knows the inside of a church all too well. We were the Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night folks, so three times a week. Krista grew up in Petersburg, Illinois, a small town outside of Springfield. So she wasn't really exposed to the gay community until college. I was like, oh, that is me. Oh, gosh. You know, and I knew that I could never return to that church. Although my sister does love to ask every time we hit that town up, if we can go to church. And I said I'd really prefer not to be, you know, in that space. I feel like uh, the banishment would be pretty severe. So I just choose not to go. Krista eventually came out to her family in her early 30s. Her mom, being a woman of the church, had trouble accepting the news. Her first words were, oh, oh, I I believe it was, what did I do wrong? (laughs) And I was like, well, it's not really about you doing anything. You know, it's just not about you, period. But it's not about you doing anything wrong. Um, And I figured she would be very embarrassed um, being involved in the church. A religious background is something Krista has in common with her co-owner. Jonda Valentine. So Jonda was raised Pentecostal. Her father was a Pentecostal preacher. So they were very involved in the religion and in the church. Unfortunately, Jonda herself doesn't do interviews. She is not going to be able to Zoom. She does not do email. She's not going to be able to do any of that. I love her dearly, but it's not going to (laughs) happen. Even though we didn't get to speak with Jonda directly, we learned a lot about her from Krista. When she got older and moved to Nashville, she became a part of Christ Church here in Nashville. And they literally kicked her out in the 80s for being gay, for coming out as gay. By the early 2000s, both Jonda and Krista were living in Nashville. Well, she was, at that time, she was a portrait artist. She's a wonderful uh, painter. And um, her business wasn't doing so great after 9-11 and all that. And... Um, She missed, you know, she was working from home all day, every day, uh, and she was just really lonely. Jonda missed the sense of community that church had once provided her. You know, there's something that happens to you when you're you're basically banished from all the people that you know and you surround yourself with whenever you're that immersed into a church. And Lipstick Lounge was the way that Jonda circumvented it, if you will, and said, okay, well, if I can't have my fellowship there, I'll create my own fellowship with an all-encompassing love and acceptance here at the Lipstick Lounge. And that was the origin of Nashville's lesbian bar, Lipstick Lounge. Jonda officially opened her bar in 2002. And if she were on this call, she would tell you, you know, one of her main reasons for opening Lipstick was was to, to feel that church vibe, if you will, like with the good parts of it. Um, you know, the fellowship, the um, acceptance and the love. I hate to be past tense about it, but that used to go through churches, you know, it was kind of on her heart to open up this space for women specifically, um, because there was nothing like it in Nashville. It's a space that fosters community and fellowship and spirituality for people like Jonda, who may no longer have a home in traditional church settings. They even host non-denominational services on Sundays. We used to have a choir come in on Sundays during brunch, this amazing choir. Um, We've had several um, preachers do sermons down at Lipstick. 
not necessarily during open hours, uh, but like on Sunday morning before we open up for brunch. We joked around about changing the name years ago to Our Lady of the Lipstick so we could, you know, not have to pay taxes like a church. Legally, the Lipstick Lounge is still a bar. But for Krista and Jonda and their community members, there's something undeniably spiritual about being there. There's definitely some God, universe, whatever your word is, in there. And the building is a really cool, cool historic building. It was built in 1896. So very, very cool building. And there's a gentleman named Jim that came in a few months after we had opened. He's a neighborhood guy. And at least according to Jim, he had something to do with the sanctity of the space. And he was like, I just wanted to tell y'all that you see all these, you see this ceiling right here? He's like, I painted every bit of that ceiling after they put in the new ductwork and all that. He said, and I went to each corner and I put holy water in each corner and I said, may God's love always abide in here. He said, and it's abiding in here. He said, I feel God's love in here more than I've ever felt anywhere in my life, more than any church. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, that's, that's what it's all about. It, do you feel the love when you walk in? If you're feeling the love, then we're doing the right thing. This is Cruising, a podcast about the last lesbian bars in the U.S. My name is Sarah Gabrielli, and I'm traveling to each one of them with my two friends and chosen family. This is stop number 19, the Lipstick Lounge. Krista Sapan comes from a long line of bar owners. My grandparents, they own Sapan's Tavern up there, and they were open until about 1980, I guess. Uh, my grandfather passed away in 73, so my grandmother kept it open for many years after that. Um, and then my dad worked there as well, uh, and he also owned a sporting goods shop, so right next door. So, I mean, I might, my last name means beer brewer. I don't really know what else. <laughs> I didn't have much of an option, did I? So growing up, Chris just spent as much time in bars as she did in the church, if not more. Well, yeah. I mean, when I was born, I had many pictures of me sitting on a bar top as a young child. But bars were different back then. You know, bars weren't really for adults. You didn't have all your chain restaurants and all those types of things. You know, back in the 70s, a bar was where you went to go have, you know, lunch after church. And where, you know, that's where you went out for meals as well. You didn't have, you know, chilies and Outback and all these restaurants. That didn't exist back then. So, Bars were definitely a place to congregate and celebrate, and it was a familial thing, not just, you know, adults and heavy drinking and dancing. So, different world, different time, long time ago. After high school, Krista went to college to study criminal justice. She paid her way through school by bartending and waiting tables, but hadn't intended to stay in the service industry. And I got done with college, and my dad's like, so what are you going to do, kid? And I was like... <clears throat> it seems kind of silly to go risk my life on a daily basis to make half of what I'm making bartending and serving. <laughs> and he's like, don't tell me you've gone to college, you know, all this time. And now you're not going to, I was like, yeah, I said, I don't, I don't really want to do that. So I'm just going to do this until maybe I don't want to do it anymore. But yeah, I guess I never got that real job. <laughs> and Krista ended up really enjoying the work. 
I don't know. I just, I've always loved to serve people. I think it's, it's so enjoyable to get to meet all these different people and, and they don't just stick around as customers. Um, you know, a lot of these people become your friends, you know, they're sharing their life with you. They're coming in a couple days a week, you know, their parents' names because they bring their parents in. They, you know, you know, you know, their dog's names, you know, their, what they do for a living. You can ask them what their job is. Yeah. Like you have deeper conversations. Uh, not just a, hi, my name is, and this is what I drank. In 2002, Krista was bartending at a place a little outside of Nashville. And one of her regular customers at the time was Jonda's identical twin sister. But her identical twin sister never told me she had an identical twin sister, Jonda Lou and Rhonda Sue. So at this point, Jonda was planning the opening of Lipstick Lounge. So when they went to open the bar, they were like, you need to go, you need to drive out to Cool Springs and go get Krista. That's who needs to work here. <laughs> so they came in and, you know, told me what they were up to. And I was like, okay, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll check it out. So Krista started at Lipstick as a bartender. But just a few months after they opened, she ended up becoming a co-owner. They weren't doing so well. She was looking for an investor. And I said, well, I have some money. I don't know what that looks like to you. And so I came in and took over partial ownership. I started in November, so we opened in September. Not just a few, just a few months of not being an owner, I guess. And around that same time, Krista and Jonda started dating. Oh, it was awful. Um, owning a bar with your significant other is—I would not. Well, I wouldn't recommend any, owning any business um, with your partner. Who you go home to and go at night? Go, man, today was a hell of a day because they had the exact same hell of a day. You know, it's it's hard to, yes, you're in the same boat, but the same token, you know, you don't have anybody to just share with because they're literally so immersed in your life that they're sharing every moment with you anyway. It was, uh, it was hard. Jonna calls them the dark times. The pair eventually broke up after four years together. It was one of those things I say, you know, it's, it's for the greater good of both of us because we just were struggling so terribly. And it wasn't for lack of love because we still adore each other, but it was just... It was just too much. It was just too much. And Jonda will tell you this. She's like, we're soulmates, just not on the level that people believe soulmates are. It only took a couple of weeks for Krista and Jonda to recover and get back into the swing of running the bar. For us, it was that, that true friendship and love for one another that's enabled us to remain business partners and remain best friends and remain, I mean, truly sisters. The Lipstick Lounge sits on the corner of 14th and Woodland Street. It's a boxy purple building with red and green trim. There's an unmissable lip-shaped bench out front and a neon Lipstick Lounge sign in the window right above the bench. We should take a picture on the, on the lips with the three of us afterwards. Yeah. Inside, the bar is just as colorful as its exterior. The walls are painted purple, green, and red. There's a small stage in the front corner with a curtain backdrop, strips of purple, green, and hot pink fabric that looked all too familiar to Rachel. That are exactly the same as the curtains I had in my childhood bedroom. (laughs) What does that say about me? (laughs) And what does that say about the bar? Most lesbian bars have a karaoke night once a week, but we'd somehow managed to miss that at every single bar on our road trip thus far. In Nashville, however, 
every night is karaoke night. And because it's Nashville, people sound good. We made our way to the bar in the back of the room and met Crystal, the bartender. Not Krista, the owner. This is a longtime lipstick lounge bartender, Crystal, with an L. I was sitting here eating brunch, and Krista basically just said, you're a bartender, do you want a job? And I said, sure. And then I started the next week. Probably about, I've been here nine years. That night, Crystal had some sort of cast on her arm. It's an arm brace from pulling a tendon from doing aerial for four hours. Outside of bartending, Crystal does all different kinds of performing. I am an aerialist, a fire performer, bed of nails specialist, sword swallower, and grinder girl. It's a metal corset with an angle grinder to shoot sparks. She's also a burlesque dancer. My name is Lucifera Star, because I cosplay as Lucifer. Lucifer uh, from the TV show all the time. Krista led us out to the patio and introduced us to two fellow burlesque performers. My name's Lynn Hearn. Um, Pronouns are he, him, they. I work here on brunches. Lynn is also a bartender here. I've been coming to Lipstick um, pretty much since it opened. And I'm B.B. McQueen. My real name is Beth Abernathy, but I... Pretty much any time someone talks to me, I use B.B. McQueen because it sounds really good. And sitting with them was Minnie Pearl. Minnie Pearl was a comedian, and her whole jam was to tell these horny girl stories. (laughs) And so Minnie Pearl was like your awkward, horny cousin from Grinders Switch, Tennessee. You know, her whole persona was being a horny girl who couldn't find no man from a small town in Tennessee. And uh, that just seemed like a really good name for my dog, you know? <laughs> like, yes, Minnie Pearl is BB's dog. She's a top, like her mother. And so she can be a little aggressive around other animals. So I usually only bring her on like Mondays and Tuesdays when it's like a when it's like low flow. Like the original Minnie Pearl, BB and Lynn are both performers. About a decade ago, Lynn had been in a burlesque troupe with Crystal. It was called Betty Roulette. Um, and she was the first person who taught me how to dance with fire and loved it. The style of burlesque that Lynn does today is different from his days in Betty Roulette. My stage name is Lindalicious. My burlesque is very comedy burlesque. Like I'm, I'm very tall, skinny, lanky. Um, and I've always been very, very thin and, um, I've always gotten shit for that. I don't see myself as like a sexy person. So I do I do a lot of comedy burlesque. I have a C3PO act from Star Wars that I do. Goodness gracious me. Where I come out with a C3PO mask on. Hello, I think. And then do a traditional burlesque strip to it. And It's a little weird, but folks love it. I do believe they think I am some sort of god. Beth's stage persona, as she already mentioned, is B.B. McQueen. There's a certain standard in burlesque, which is beautiful, straight, white woman removes dress to jazz song, right? It's like a formula. 
You know, I'm a six foot tall, 250 pound woman. And from that first act that I created, I knew that beautiful white woman removes dress to jazz song would not ever be the aesthetic that I wanted to do. Like Lynn, B.B. weaves comedy into her act. So let's say you're Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. And then it switches to a song from Pink Floyd. And then you roll your stockings off of your legs and put them on your hands and turn them into sock puppets that sing the backup music to the song. Like I wanted to always have like a certain level of cheekiness and like a, uh, a wink and a nudge. You can tell just from talking to BB that she's a performer. She sort of puts on a show for you right off the bat. I am what most people would have referred to as a child as precocious, which means unbearable. So yes, I have always been this person. When I was born, I didn't make a noise until the doctor hit me and then I cried and I have not shut up since then. So yeah, I made a very dramatic entrance. They thought I was dead and then he gave me a whack and I have not shut up since. We can't say we agreed with BB labeling herself as unbearable. Well, that's, um, you know, that's debatable. But at least according to BB, she can be a little much for her more reserved counterpart. I think that I think that Lynn sometimes gets a little fatigued, but that is just part of the job. You know, like sometimes I will look over to Lynn and he's very tired. He's like, Beth, just like maybe perhaps like right now when he's looking at me across the table and he goes, shut the f- up in the most quiet and polite way ever. BB and Lynn are best friends. They met at around 16 years old. Oh, this will be good. Uh, so the way that I met Lynn was um, uh, Tori Amos was playing at the Tennessee Performing Arts Theater in April of like 1996. Me and my girlfriends, we went to see Tori Amos and I spotted Lynn and he was like a skinny goth boy in a cape. And I was like, hello. And he was like, no, and ran away. But later that year, we both through the magic of the cosmic universe, ended up (laughs) auditioning to be something called a PG-13 player, which is the peer education group arm of the Planned Parenthood of Middle Tennessee. So we would go (laughs) to high schools around the area and do skits about wearing a rubber or like not getting chlamydia or, you know, like to like abortions are legal, you know, like, and that was what, that was how we became friends as we both were in this peer education arm of Planned Parenthood together called the PG-13 Players. And that was the summer we became friends. BB and Lynn went to different high schools in the same area of Nashville. And somehow they both discovered the PG-13 Players. I think there was like a, a flyer that got posted in our schools. You know, there's a bulletin board and we're both the kind of like nerdy involved kind of people that will check the bulletin board once a week, you know. Um, and so we both somehow outside of each other found it and found each other through that. And yes, in the middle of the PG-13 players audition, BB and Lynn realized they had met once before. We were like, um, weren't you that girl that hit on me when I had that cape on that one time? (laughs) But after that, we totally clicked. The players weren't just actors. They actually wrote all of the skits themselves. Part of the training of it was us getting together and figuring out how to impart this wisdom upon our peers 
in a way that they would absorb as opposed to like being like the way like a church would do it being like hey you guys you know jesus is down with everything and all you got to do is confess you know like no that was not what this was about this was about connecting with people at that age on their level and this worked because planned parenthood empowered these teenagers with information we received knowledge that most people do not receive until they're in their 20s and 30s um I personally know a lot of women that didn't know they had a clitoris until they were about 25 years old. And so when you're 16 and you're sat down in a, in a classroom type environment with labels and slides and all this shit, and you're given this knowledge up front and you don't have to go out and seek it for yourself, it comes to you in a much more scholastic vibe rather than like these secrets you know amongst children that are like i heard about sex do you want to hear about it no we got the we got the deets on sex we got the flashcards. we had notes and we knew what it was about and bb and lynn have been inseparable ever since i mean if i if i don't see him three times a week i feel out of sorts I, you know, if it's been a couple of days, I'm like, do we need to go eat a baked potato together? And he's like, yes. And we will go find a baked potato and some wings and a shot and we'll drink. But uh, yeah, no, we've we've been pretty dedicated to being each other's best friends for well over two decades now. And I don't see anything changing about that. Sometimes you find your people. And when you find your people, you dig in and <laughs> don't let go. <laughs> no matter how much they want to be let go. <laughs> Bibi and Lynn both grew up in the Nashville area, but like I said, they went to different high schools. So he would come pick me up from school and drive me home. And his mom would be like, Madison is so far from Bellevue. It's like, it's like 25 minutes. In the early years of their friendship, their parents were very concerned with one thing. Our parents were like very much trying to wrap their heads around the idea that like two people of an opposite sex could sleep in the same bag together and nothing would get slippery. You know, like it was like, yeah, no, there's no moisture here. This is like a dry friendship, you know, like none of that, you know, like we're, we're besties on a, on a spiritual level, not a sexual level, you know, like, what do you mean Lynn's going to spend the night? Well, yeah, I was going to spend the night and it's going to be fine because it's fine. In the end, these sleepovers were permitted. My mom knew he was gay. His mom didn't necessarily know he was gay, had a fairly good inkling, was not accepting it for herself. But like, you know, prom happens like Lynn's just going to spend the night. And she's like, well, OK, you know, like there was like a lot of that going on in like the beginning of our friendship. Lynn didn't actually come out to his parents until his early 20s. My mother and I were so super close and I expected my mom to be like, oh, yes, and just hug me. Um, and I expected my father to, to like throw my shit out on the front yard. But Lynn didn't know his parents as well as he thought. First of all, his mom had a really hard time accepting him. She was sitting there in her little chair with her moist washcloth, having a drama moment, being like, mm, I'm so upset. And um, she chose the route of vilification. My mother said some things to me that while I have forgiven, I will never forget. Um, I mean, it's kind of hard to forget when your mother tells you you're going to hell. Like, that's hard to forget. It's easy to forgive, but hard to forget. Fortunately for Lynn, his dad, Tommy, took a very different approach to things. He said to me, I don't understand this. How can I understand this? And um, so 
I came armed with brochures, by the way. I was like, I knew we were having the coming out convo. So I came armed with the brochure from the American Psychological Association on their stance on homosexuality. And it also came with a P-Flag Nashville brochure. <laughs> so I was like, hey, here's this. And mom and dad, if y'all want more parents of queers to talk to you, here's this. Tommy was really committed to better understanding his son. My father and I ended up going to family therapy together. He went to a session, I went to one, and then we went to one together. And um, everything was beautiful after that. We reached this point of understanding of one another that, hey, we're just humans and we are who we are. And we were able to step out of that father-son role and just look at each other as humans and as individuals and respect each other. This was the early 2000s. And around that same time, Cher and Cindy Lauper were performing together on Cher's farewell tour. Cher is in the middle of her farewell tour. Lynn was at his parents' house one day when a commercial for the tour came on TV. Girls kick ass. That's right. Don't come if you don't want your butt kicked, okay? Mm -hmm. If you're not strong, if you've got a weak heart, don't bother coming. My dad was like, oh, my God, I'm going to get us tickets to share. And my dad totally did. He got me. He bought three tickets to the Cher and Cindy Lauper concert. And my mom refused to go. So on November 13th, 2002, Lynn, his dad and his friend Casey attended the Cher and Cindy Lauper concert. And at one point, Cindy Lauper came out and she spoke a lot about her sister, who is also a lesbian. And she wrapped herself in a beautifully rhinestoned gay pride flag and then sang True Colors. And I saw a look on my father's face that I had only maybe seen once or twice before in my entire life that he was actually having an epiphany. And it was one of the most amazing moments of my life. Like I reached over and just patted him, patted him on the knee and then he grabbed my hand and just held it. And after the concert... I took my dad to Tribe. We got a little tipsy after the Cher concert. And me and Casey were like, hey, y'all want to go to Tribe? And I was like, dad, it's a gay bar. And he was like, hey, why not? This was Tommy's first time setting foot in a gay bar. And he absolutely loved it. He had the best time. He was talking with everybody like... People would come up and be like, oh, Lynn, who's this? I'm like, this is my dad. And they're like, what the f***? And he loved it. 20 years later, that night still sits with Lynn. Sharon Cindy Lauper was the, uh, was the first time that I ever felt fully accepted and loved by my dad. This was all back in 2002. And Lynn would only have about two more years left with his dad. I miss him 
wholeheartedly to this day. Like there's not a day goes by that I don't think about him. He remembers exactly where he was in 2004 when he got a cryptic phone call from his aunt. I was at Blue Bar hanging out with some friends. It was maybe like four o'clock in the afternoon and I got that phone call. And um, I was like, this is weird. So then on my way home, I had the radio off in my car. It was like a 30 minute drive from where I was. The radio was off the whole time. And the whole way home, it was just silence. I was like, this is weird. Please don't let it be what I'm feeling it is. And um, it was. Tommy, Lynn's dad had had a heart attack. He was on a hunting trip in Arkansas. And my dad turned to my uncle and said, hey, you know what? I really, he's like, I really don't feel good. And my uncle was like, hey, man, let's just sit down on this log and like take a rest. By the time my uncle had sat down, my father had already collapsed. And my uncle did CPR, um, but was unfortunately unsuccessful. So... He was with family and people that he loved doing what he loved doing. But something truly incredible had happened in the two years since the Cher concert. Lynn got to experience the relationship with his dad that he'd always wanted. When he did pass away, we were, our relationship was amazing. Like I, for years, uh, we had uh, butted heads and everything. And for so long, I'd always like growing up a queer kid in the South, you're like, Oh my God, why can't my parents be like this? But then when we got to that point, I finally realized I was like, Oh my God, my, he is the dad that I always wanted. He was the dad that I was wishing for. I just didn't know that we had to go through these steps to get there, but we got there. And, um, I, I have, no regrets. It took time and work and a lot of brochures, but Tommy had been able to completely evolve. I mean, and, and he was also dealing with his position in the world. He was born in 1951 and grew up in Tennessee. So as far as like the concepts of queerness, those were things that were foreign to him. But once he realized, oh God, this is part of my life, okay, this is part of my life. I need to learn about this. And his, my father's ability to just open his arms to thoughts and feelings and to people is one of the the greatest things that I ever learned from him. Once he finally got over that 1950s Southern male stigma about the queers, as it were, he realized like, these people are just people and they're just as much deserving of love and acceptance and respect as everyone else. In his father's absence, Lynn has held on to chosen family like BB and others at Lipstick Lounge. He's always been able to talk to Krista, the owner, about their relationships with their parents. Krista and I have had so many conversations about our parents and like being queer and navigating parents. Like she and I have had so many conversations about that. 
Krista had left her whole family behind in 1992 when she moved from Illinois to Nashville. Yeah, I came down here one weekend uh, with one of my friends. I mean, I'm not a country music lover. I certainly do not sing. Um, I came down here and I was like, I felt so good when I was down here. I was like, I feel like there's something down here for me. And um, I literally went back to Illinois the next week and packed up my things and moved down the following week. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm ready to go. I needed to get out of that small town. It was a little bit too small for, for me. She'd only planned on staying in Nashville for a couple of years, but things like that never really go as planned, do they? My father uh, tragically had a massive heart attack and passed away um, in 2000. And my mother had multiple sclerosis. She got sick when I was four years old, so she was wheelchair bound. And um, my dad had been her caregiver because obviously I didn't live there anymore. Um, so when he passed away, um, I moved her to Nashville and took care of her until she passed away. If you remember, Krista and her mom, Connie, had a strained relationship. Ever since Krista first came out to her back in 1995. Now, Krista's whole life revolved around the queer community in Nashville. So there was no avoiding the topic. I'd always be like, you want to come to work with me tonight, you know? And for a while, the answer was always no. I think she was a little hesitant to go in at first. So, of course, I had to, you know, people come over and stay with her at nighttime while I was at work. But then... One night, she's like, I think I'd really like to go down there. And I was like, really? I was like, okay. And um, it was so cool. I'm probably going to cry. Um, when she came in there. Um, it just felt so good to have, you know, a part of my family um, who who could see what lipstick was without just having their imagination run amok on what they thought it might be. And that was it. After that first visit to Lipstick Lounge, Connie became a regular. She had her own spot up front at the accessible table by the door. And of course, you know, somebody would always be sitting with her. <laughs> Everybody just they'd be like, oh, that's Krista's mom. And they'd go up and introduce themselves and hello, hello. And they'd sit down and talk to her and she'd tell them Lord only knows what stories. Just she'd talk about whatever. <laughs> she didn't care. She loved the attention. She loved, you know, I'm sure she got tired of seeing my face all day long. Eventually, Krista had to make the difficult decision of putting Connie in a nursing home. But this didn't stop her from coming out to the bar. She would uh, get on access ride and come down on the weekends and, you know, have her one beer or two beers or her screwdriver or whatever she was going to drink that night. At first, Connie's visits to Lipstick Lounge probably were born out of loneliness. We really didn't have, we didn't have any family left in Illinois at that time. My sister had already left the state. So um, after dad passed away, there was no other living family up there. And, you know, a lot of my mom's friends were older, so they'd all passed away as well. But like Lynn and BB and innumerable other queer folks, Connie found a chosen family at Lipstick Lounge. My mother uh, <laughs> became quite the fixture at Lipstick. She, uh, everybody just called her Miss Connie. Um, because down south, you know, you call people Miss Connie or Miss whoever, and um, they just embraced her, and she never thought another thing about it. It was really quite beautiful um, to see them just love my mother. Six years ago, Miss Connie passed away. She would be buried back home in Illinois, but since she lived in Nashville for so long, Krista decided to have the service there. I went to the funeral home and 
Uh, they said, well, which, you know, which chapel room do you need? Well, we know she's not from here. So we'd recommend one of the smaller chapel rooms. And I was like, well, I'm pretty sure it's going to be pretty busy. And um, so I asked for the, the large chapel room in the middle. Miss Connie might not have been from here, and she might not have had much biological family left. But the Lipstick Lounge community certainly filled that large chapel room. It was so amazing to see all the people who, I know that they touched my mom's life and vice versa. She was able to feel so loved and so surrounded um, down here in Nashville after she lost my dad. So, pretty cool. Krista gets emotional thinking about how lucky she was to have had that second chance at a relationship with her mom. You know, I hear so many stories of people who've come out to their family and who were discarded and, you know, basically just thrown away and no longer kicked out of their family. And it's so hard for me to wrap my mind around that. And because I know how fortunate I was, it could have been so different. But Krista isn't helpless in this matter. I mean, she runs Lipstick Lounge after all. One of the main reasons um, lipstick's so important to me is that I feel like we give a home and a family to people who have been shunned um, from their church, from their family. My staff has more of a sense of family. Um, I mean, most of them call me Ma. Even though they have great families of their own as well, they feel that sense of family, and I think they feel that sense of, um, of need for lipstick as well. And Lynn and Beth will tell you, at Lipstick, Krista and Jonda fall seamlessly into parental roles. Mama and Lou, that's what we call them. <laughs> because, like, e- even when I text Krista or call Krista, I call her mom. Just because that's... We all call her mom. Yeah, that, that's where she is, and that is the role that she has taken on for herself. If it's it's muddy in your real life, it doesn't have to be muddy here. She's your mom. There's no, there's no question. Mom and Jonda's the cool aunt. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Jonda's the cool drunk aunt. Um, (laughs) But no, but no, for real, like, like Krista, not just in these walls, Krista takes on that mother role outside of it as well. And if you ever run into Jonda or Krista, one, Jonda's going to corner you for at least 45 minutes um, and tell you how much she loves you. Like, this place is about family, and parents build family. They really do. In a family household, the, the whole vibe of the family, the whole view is created by the parents and that's what exactly what Krista and Jonda have done here Cruising is reported and produced by Rachel Carp, Jen McGinnity and me Sarah Gabrielli our theme song is by Joey Freeman if you like cruising want to support us and get access to more content then join our patreon at patreon.com slash cruising pod you can also follow us on social media at cruisingpod or visit our website cruisingpod.com. Special thanks this week to Krista, Crystal, Lynn, and Vivi. And thank you to Honda for sponsoring this episode of Cruising. You can listen wherever you get 
your podcasts.